All right, let's turn our attention to Scripture. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Esther. And we are going to finish Esther chapter 9 today. We're going to read verse 20 through the end of chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them the days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term purr. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Good morning. It is Palm Sunday, and it's also the week of Purim. So we are going to talk about Purim, and it happens to be, well, it doesn't happen, we actually scheduled it this way, so that we're at this part of the book this Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this study and for how you speak to us through your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would speak to each individual here. We ask, Lord, for your blessing upon your people in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this quote that's credited to Edmund Burke. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. It's actually debatable as to whether he's the one who said it or whether it was George Santayana, I believe it was, a Spanish philosopher, or if it was Winston Churchill. Doesn't matter who the original person is. It's a good quote, okay? It's a good quote. Meaningful quote. And when we look at the Bible... There are quite a few historical books, right? We look through the Bible, and it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and Samuel, 1 and Kings, 1 and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And while the other books aren't considered historical books, many of them have these historical elements in them. For example, if we're looking at the Passover feast, and we're looking for instructions about the Passover feast and the history of the Passover feast, we look to books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
Now, why is the Bible so full of history and so full of things of commemoration, of remembrance? And it's because those things are extremely significant, to recall, to remember those things. And in this case of what happened during the time of Esther, to remember what God did in reversing, reversing what would happen to the Jews. Take a look at Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the amount of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. To remember, to commemorate that no matter how bad the circumstances have become around us, that even something as evil and atrocious as genocide, God is a God of reversal changes things. Now this Wednesday night is the beginning of Purim. It goes through Thursday night. Now what is Purim? And that's what Pastor Steve read for us in verses 24 through 28. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term pur. Now, pur is the Persian word for lot. Now, in English, our word Per means water filter. And in feline, it means whatever the heck it wants to mean because once it purrs, I can mean I hate you. It can mean I love you. It doesn't matter because I'm a cat. So it has all these different meanings. But in Persian, per means lots. The plural form, perum, is lots. So therefore, continue on with that verse. Because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every seat. That these days, Wednesday, Friday, should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Now, what were the Jews remembering? What were they commemorating? Well, Haman was this wicked man who set out to destroy the Jews. He cast lots based on this superstition to say, like, we're going to keep casting lots until we figure out what day is the best day for genocide. And while he's doing all of this, in reality, he's forgetting that God is in control of all of this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. You can do all you want with your superstitious stuff, but God's in control. Now, you and I have the free will to make decisions, but God's greater story is not thrown off by us or by our actions. And the things within God's greater story, they don't happen by accident. God is sovereign. This section of Scripture from Ephesians 1, which we've shared over and over again and referenced throughout our Esther series. Let's turn to this one again. Esther chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There is nothing that can stop God's greater story of redemption through Jesus Christ. 
that happened 2,000 years ago, and we'll be celebrating that next week during Easter. And the greater story of God's purpose that at the fullness of time, he will unite all things to Jesus, all things in heaven, all things on earth. There is nothing that can be done to change that plan. That is God's greater plan. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, we have free will, but there are some things in God's greater story that will happen no matter what we decide. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no changing that. That's going to happen. And what we have in this section of chapter 9 is the installation of Purim recorded by Mordecai. Let's read verses 20 through 23, Esther chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So the Jews accepted this feast. We've read through verses 24 through 28, so we're going to skip that for now. And when we get to verse 29 and on, we see Esther's authoritative role and confirmation about Purim. And this feast, like any other Jewish feast, they are for the Jews to remember. It was a time to celebrate. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. And you'll notice in those verses that feasting and gladness are mentioned in each one of those verses. It's mentioned three times. From days of mourning to days of gladness. And these were for days of rest and for celebration from this hard-fought war. Something that just kind of happened spontaneously. It wasn't planned. They were really happy that they won, and hey, this is time for us to celebrate. We're so glad about this. Let's celebrate. Well, Mordecai noticed this celebration happening amongst the people, and he decided with Queen Esther, let's make this celebration official. Let's make this official as a Jewish holiday so that the people will remember the deliverance forever. And this is something that we do. Right? This is what we do. That's why we put up memorials and we have these war memorials in respective places because we want to remember. And we create holidays to remember important dates. And it's a way for us to commemorate, to remember. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but Oakland has a really, really cool monument to remember champions of humanity. I don't know how many of you have been there, but it's right in the uptown area, the Kaiser Park, right by the Fox Theater there. And in this beautiful piece of artwork are some incredible global humanitarians, people like Mother Teresa and Oscar Schindler and Martin Luther King Jr., Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela. That's just to name a few. And that's not my favorite part, though. My favorite part of this is when I bring my kids to see this because my kids ice skate just a block away from this monument. My favorite part of this are the local champions of humanity. Do you realize who Oakland has that has come out for champions of humanity? 
and we think of people like Henry Kaiser. Everyone knows Kaiser because we're all in their insurance, right? So, but Henry Kaiser is someone who worked for workers' rights, for immigration, for pensions, for housing, and all those things, even though he was a very wealthy man, it, it helped form him to build the nation's largest nonprofit healthcare organization, Kaiser. Or if you look at someone like Joaquin Miller, right, elementary school named after him, all the hills and all that kind of stuff. He lived out here in his retirement age on 75 acres right back here. But he was this conservationist who allied himself to Chinese immigrants during the Chinese Exclusion Act. So I'm partial to him, right? I'm partial to that guy. Or we think of women like Oleta Abrams, another of Oakland's own. She founded the first rape crisis center in the entire country, came out of Oakland. And it was her, because she was fostering a teenage girl who got raped and then found that there was no resources, so she began this. To look for justice, to look for treatment, to look for support, and there are over a dozen of local champions from Oakland in that monument. And a lot of people don't know about them. I didn't know about Oleta Abrams. I didn't know about her. But that's exactly what monuments are for. That's exactly what holidays are for. That's exactly what those things are for. And I'm so grateful to be part of this heritage in the city because it falls within our mission of doing justice and loving mercy, parts of our mission statement. And that monument serves as a reminder for us to love our city and to commemorate where we live, where we work, eat, do business in, all these types of things. And so I strongly encourage you guys, stop by that monument sometime. Off the grid, it's right there. Like, go grab your street mobile food or whatever they call it now, and it's right there. Fox Theater's there, a bunch of cool restaurants right there. Just ice skate right there. Like, it's all right there. Just remember, commemorate. That's right there. And this is what Mordecai and Esther instituted in Purim, to remember, to commemorate their deliverance, their rest, their feasting, their gladness, all the things that they received. So you see how Purim is celebrated today in verse 22. They are days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. You notice that it wasn't Esther Day or Mordecai Day or whatever else. It was Purim. They recognized who delivered them. They weren't taking credit for themselves and like, hey, good job, Esther, good job, Mordecai. There was a source, and they knew it wasn't them. And we know that God's not mentioned in this book at all, but they're not patting themselves on the back either. You take a look at verse 27. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. Now when we look at a word like obligated, I don't know about you, but to me it's just like, there's like a negative connotation to it, right? Most people don't want to feel obligated to do something. They want to do something because they feel like it. They want to. They love you. And so that's why they do it. They don't want it to be done out of obligation. They want it out of a desire or out of almost anything else but obligation. Yet, this is how obligation works for memorials and monuments and holidays and really important times in history. They are obligations. And if it weren't for an obligation, how many people would really recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day? Really, 50 years later. How many people would really sit down to commemorate that day if it weren't an obligation? 
And it's even a holiday where people get a day off and people still don't observe it for what it is. Can you imagine if we didn't make it an obligation? How far we would be in terms of forgetting it? It's really sad, but it's the truth. It's important for us to be obligated to observe because of what that day, of what Martin Luther King Jr. did for the civil rights movement of our country. And I am personally really glad that my kids have to. They are obligated to learn about Martin Luther King Jr. There's no choice. I'm happy about that. I'm glad that they and every other child in this country, they are obligated to learn about it. It doesn't matter how they feel about it. It doesn't matter how the schools feel about it. They are obligated. They need to know that. They need to know that about our history. They need to know about where we came from and the struggles that our country went through. They need to know these things. And the further out a generation is from when something really important happened, the more obligation that is needed because the more that they will forget. Do you think anyone didn't know who Martin Luther King Jr. was in the late 60s? Was there a soul who didn't know who he was? Everybody knew. But it's been decades later, it's 50 years later from when he was assassinated, and it's waning that you don't just automatically know. You have to learn about it. And a lot of people have immigrated into our country those 50 years. A lot of people have been born in our country those last 50 years. And they all need to know. They're all obligated to know. So obligation is not always bad. I can feel good about doing something that I feel obligated to. As a follower of Jesus, we're obligated to love. We're obligated to do that. Are we not obligated to love as Christians? It's an obligation. You have to. Anything other than that is hypocrisy. We have to. We're obligated to share the love of God to the world, and hopefully it's more than just obligation. Hopefully it's something that we actually want to do, that we love to do, that we desire to do. Now you look at verse 27 again. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. See, the obligation wasn't just for themselves. It was for future generations and everyone around them. Obligation is not always bad. Doing something out of obligation rooted in guilt or shame, probably not good. Doing something out of obligation rooted in duty, in responsibility, in honor, in respect, probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. Now, some may feel that obligating ourselves or our offspring is acceptable, but to obligate those outside of our family? Yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. is a civil rights leader, not just to my family. He just is. That's who he is. And the truth doesn't cease outside of my family. The obligation is the obligation. So do we see Jesus like this? And I think a lot of Christians, they cower because we're fearful of offending. So it's okay for me, it's okay for my offspring, but outside of that, nah. But the thing is, Jesus is Jesus. The truth doesn't cease outside of me or my family. He's the same guy. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. When you've been delivered from genocide, annihilation, destruction, you don't care what others think. right? You just simply don't care. The Jews were saved from genocide, to which 
many who exist today, they would not be here today if not for what happened during Esther's day. And that needed to be remembered, and it is. It's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. If you know that you've been rescued, delivered from the gates of hell, it just doesn't matter. You will just say and tell people and commemorate that if that is very real to you. Now, my Jewish friends, practicing and non-practicing Jews, they celebrate Purim this week, kind of like practicing Christians and non-practicing Christians who celebrate Christmas. Right? It's the same thing. And so my daughter goes to school with some Jewish children, and the entire fourth grade class is actually heading off to a camping trip this week, and all these Jewish kids are really bummed that they're going to miss Purim at their synagogues. And so I'm talking to my wife because she's a chaperone. I was like, you should do Purim up there and camp and stuff. Like, you should just do that. I don't know if she will. But anyway, now some of these Jewish kids, they're practicing Jews, and most of them are not. But you know what? They're all bummed. They're all bummed that they're missing out on this. And they're all similar in celebration, whether it's like Reformed or whether it's like Orthodox Jews. The celebrations are very similar in that they all read the Megillah, the scroll of Esther. They read throughout that story. They all come dressed up of characters from that story. Some of them look like Mad Max Mordecai. Some of them like sackcloth and ash and whatever. Some look like Purple Rain Mordecai, you know, just coming out with prince outfits. And some like Queen Esther and some like Haman, and they're all dressed up. And we had Jews for Jesus out here a few weeks ago. I don't know if some of you were here. And Dr. Robinson was sharing and giving us some glimpses about these festivities. And Eric Lowe, who is our newest elder, by the way, if you ever see him, congratulate him for that. He surprised Dr. Robinson because he made hamantashen. And I asked Dr. Robinson, have you ever had a hamantashen made by a Chinese guy? And he was like, no. Here you go, right here. And so, because they were very good. They were really good. And so hamantashen means Haman's hat, right? It's a symbol of defeating the enemy. And there's some other foods that are traditional to Purim. And Dr. Robinson also shared with us that people were given these groggers, right? These noisemakers that whenever Haman's name was mentioned, you're like, woo, and you'd boo him. And I wanted to bring all of those to you guys today, but I was afraid you'd use it on me. And so <laughs> then they just make these noise and they'd scorn him and his deeds and they'd do that. Think about this for a second. That started 2,500 years ago. We're 2,500 years removed from that first Purim, and people are still celebrating it today like they did back then. See these Grogger noisemaker things? They had those 25 years ago. It's not like they had an iPad thing. (laughs) This is how it was back then. And they remember. Jews from around the world remember. It's not just Israel and the United States. It's around the world. Why is this? It's Esther chapter 9. Remembrance. Obligation to remember. It's the same thing for Christians holding on to the gospel. For us to remember, and we are obligated to pass it on. Passing it to the next generation and to those around us who join us who are just kind of in our sphere of influence that if we die before Jesus Christ's return like those from the past 2,000 years have experienced, the good news continues to be remembered because we're sharing it. We're obligated to. Now thank God for my great-grandmother who passed the gospel on to my dad who passed it on to me. 
And if Jesus doesn't come back before I die, I hope my great-grandchildren remember that I'm obligated to show my children, my grandchildren, and I'm thankful for my past. I'm living in the present. I'm obligated to our future. Verses 29 through 32. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming his second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed and at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. This history is so significant. Why? Because it helps us to see God at work. It helps us to live with hope that time and time again God has come through to deliver his people and he has come through he will come through in delivering us from eternal separation from him in his son Jesus the one who sets us free from eternal bondage to sin yet there are so many including Jews who have not received him John chapter 1 verses 10 through 13 He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Next week we celebrate Easter. Now to get a foretaste of Easter, let's look at Matthew's biographical account of Jesus, starting in Matthew 27. And let's look at what Jesus was really guilty of. And you'll notice that it's really nothing because they don't have a charge against him. They don't have a charge against Jesus. So what do they resort to in verse 37 of Matthew 27? And over his head they put the charge against him which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's the charge? There's really no charge. That's the best they can come up with. Now continuing on in verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now listen to this in verses 41 and 42. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Now, who was mocking Jesus there? The chief priests, scribes, elders. These are folks who celebrated Purim every year. These are the people who celebrated all these Jewish feasts every year. These are the people who know, who remember God's deliverance. And here, they are mocking God's instrument of deliverance. Do you see the irony? 500 years before this was the institution of Purim. See, we forget even when we have holidays, monuments, memorials to remind us of what we hope to remember. If anyone is to recognize deliverance, it should have been these religious leaders, but they can't see it. They can't see it. Now, verse 43, Matthew 27. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
These were the people who knew about the deliverance of God, and they are making a mockery out of the entire thing. Now, why did God not deliver Jesus down from the cross? That's Easter. This is Easter. He wasn't delivered down from the cross. He was delivered up so that you and I could be delivered from the wages of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Galatians 1.4 Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Colossians one. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lastly, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Many Jews couldn't recognize that when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, 500 years after the first Purim celebration, they could not recognize the significance of Jesus on the cross. And many people can't see that today. All the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets, yet so many still do not believe in him. So many Jews celebrating Purim this week, celebrating deliverance, yet Jesus is ignored. How can that be? I want to start closing this message, and one of the ways I'm going to do that is read from Isaiah 53, because there we're going to find one of the prophetic words about Jesus, and we'll find that this rejection of Jesus is just all the more puzzling because these words from Isaiah were written well before the Gospels and prophesying the life of Jesus. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I don't understand how that can be denied as a Jewish person when you're reading those prophetical words. See, deliverance is available to all of us through Jesus. It's available to our Jewish brothers and sisters, yet their minds are hardened to Jesus as Messiah. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. My Jewish friends are really intrigued as to why I'm so interested in Jewish feasts and Purim and all this kind of stuff. Like they're like amazed that I know the amount that I know about this stuff and I'm talking to them about it and all this kind of stuff. And they're just like, what? Like, what are you telling me all these things? But they don't perceive that we know the same God, and I agree with them. We don't know the same God. To the extent that they don't have the full picture of who Jesus is. See, the veil remains until we turn to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Messiah, and until that veil is removed, the mind and the heart remain hardened, and there's no freedom from the bondage of sin. Yes, we're going to celebrate Easter next week, but really, is there any day during the year that is not Easter? Because it is finished. It is finished. Jesus said that on the cross. Every week we celebrate communion together and we have small groups throughout the week. Is there any day that is not Easter? Every day is Easter for us. And every week we take communion together in remembrance in remembrance of Jesus until he returns it's our way of remembrance for the last 2,000 years and so as our guest worship leaders today lead us in worship we invite you to come take communion to remember let's pray Lord we thank you for this time and we ask God that as we partake in this sacrament of communion of remembrance of what you did for us of the reconciliation you provided to us, to God, that we would take these communion elements in honor of you, in remembrance of you. Lord, I pray, God, for this week and next week, that as we have probably more visitors next week, that that veil would be revealed, that it would be removed, that people would receive you. In Jesus' name, 